0: Listeners, this is uh, Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast, and this is actually uh, not quite the Remnant podcast this week. It is an exciting crossover edition uh, w- with, uh, uh, with one-third of—hold on one second. What's going on? Sorry, that's the Spaniel, like, trying to do the Velociraptor thing to turn the handle on the door to get into the room that I'm in. Oh, thank and, God. I uh, thought it
1: was just you in your
0: own head. Uh, it might be. If it turns out that the Spaniel's asleep on the couch, I got bigger What's issues. Going
1: on? It's Jonah, the gatekeeper. <laughs> I want to speak to Michelle. Hi. Hello. How are you? It's the Remnant Podcast. All right, sorry. So uh, this is all gold.
0: Um, <laughs> so this week, uh, because John Podoritz is off spelunking or something, um, uh, we couldn't really do a proper episode of the Goldberg Long um, Podoritz uh, podcast we call Glop. Uh, Stanford glop culture. And so instead, Rob and I are going to do a special crossover edition. So I'm kind of going to have a conversation with Rob like he's a guest on Remnant, but he has more freedom to uh, become a helicopter of fists, push back, ask questions back at me, turn it any way he wants to go, because this is also half glop and it's got that mongrel vigor. That we look for in
1: podcasts. It's it's diverse. That's right. Uh, the thing about it is that uh, one thing we know for sure is that John Podoritz is listening right now. Hi, John. Uh, hey, John. We know, we know he's listening. He's listening. He's going to uh-huh. say, oh, "I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it." But he's going to he's going to listen. Um, here's I'm going to say the word cantaloupe, <laughs> and I guarantee you that Podoritz will. Let us know by using that word that he was listening and, you know, probably thinking to himself, those guys are really good. They don't need me. What's going on? Um, And uh, for listeners who don't know,
0: John Podoritz uh, is a really – and I I say this sincerely before I deliver the part after the (laughs) 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 butt. John really is a towering intellect and a really (laughs) great guy and uh, very smart and almost encyclopedic in his knowledge and weirdly – uh, resentful of, <laughs> <laughs> of of his colleagues and friends at times, and he uh, and it was really kind of sad the other day. Charles Murray was asked, "Can you name some thoughtful conservatives?" And Charles ran Charles ran through a very long list, and of <laughs> course, he left out Pod. And you could hear from across I could hear ac- from across the continental divide sure. the blood rushing out of his ever whitening knuckles as <laughs> he held his phone in ever tighter grip. Um, so anyway, uh, back to this. So if those of you don't know Rob, uh, I don't, I really don't know how much crossover there is between our audiences. I would assume it's quite a lot. Um, yeah, but just right. in case, there is, uh, there are some people who don't know who Rob long is. Rob is uh? the, the, the chief poobah of this thing. It's, what is it called? It's
1: Rico Yeah. Ricochet.
0: Oh, that's uh, it. Yeah. That? That's it. Yeah. I <laughs> hurt. Which is a uh, all conquering uh, 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 forum for uh, civil minded feedback and conversation and as well as a major podcast network unto itself. Am I
1: leaving anything else in your no, free that's, advertising exactly, I think that's 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 exactly right. Um, if Charles Murray were, say, making a list. Ah, thoughtful center-right websites that uh, have um, you know civil comments and civil conversations, and a podcast network that uh, was early in the game and expanding rapidly. He would have to put us on that list.
0: So let me ask you this: is, this is, oh, and so also Rob is uh, a storied man of 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 Can't Hollywood, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not talking about what you do in international waters and. No, um uh was one of the – at a very young age, was the executive producer of Cheers and uh, had a writer on Cheers and has, has produced many a sitcom. And uh, we'll get to all that in a little bit. But first about Ricochet, uh, do you ever worry that like – remember the movie Tucker?
1: Oh, yeah. About the oh, like, car?
0: Yeah. 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 It was just a better car than – what Detroit was producing at the time, but it was sort yeah. of ahead of its time. It had safety belts and windshield wipers and all these kinds of things. And the headlights had swiveled. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do I ever worry that Ricochet is Tucker? Sort of. Yeah, that it's. It, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're sort of working on the assumption that if you build it, they will come. That there are all these. It's sort of like my podcast, The Remnant, is based on this idea that this notion out there that the only audience out there is the Breitbart comment section. You know. Uh, Alex Jones, uh, the more intemperate Fox opinion side people, right. that that's the only, that's the only market, the only audience for conservative, uh, conservatism out there. And you were sort of standing athwart that in a lot of ways and have been for a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, what our theory is like, we're sort of agnostic about some of that stuff because it's a member driven site. So it's for members and the members have the conversations and the members sort of in many ways moderate the, 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 conversations. Right. And we believe that we're free marketeers, right? We're conservatives, So we think that if you spend, if you pay $2.50 or $3 or $5 a month to be part of a community, um, you're not going to type obscenities in all caps. And that is pretty much how it works. It kind of does work exactly the way the market says it's supposed to work that people who have a you know skin in the game and a little ownership in a in the community tend not to mess it up and tend not to want to, like, just troll and scream and yell. Yeah, but... Pod, of, we have a lot of... Yeah, go
0: ahead. Pod pays nothing into this, and you. we've seen his emails. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. You're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> to every rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, but he's 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 doing that about uh, sitcoms from the 70s. He's 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 mad about stuff no one else is mad about. <laughs> um, so our theory, uh, we have a lot of uh, Trump supporters on the site. We have a lot of uh, people who are really, really strongly Trump supporters on the site. Oh, I know, you know that. I wasn't saying that. You know, well, I just yeah. want to say that there is a way to have everybody play together nice. Now they may they may have deeply held opinions, but that doesn't. Mean that they want to scream obscenities at each other and accuse each other of being you know, treason and traitors and all that stuff. So there is a civil there is a civil sphere. It just, you have to pay for it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I, I'm surprised that nobody has on mass, people have not on mass quit Twitter. Um, but that's, uh, that's sort of a separate psychological question, right? For us, you know, w- the the Tucker analogy is more is closer aligned to our podcast business because you know we were the first and we were doing it and we were doing it for a couple of years three years and people like thought it was dumb or thought it was not worth putting any money into and now some of the very some of the very people we've been trying we trying to convince for years and years and years to do it um, and said no 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 are now doing it and um, they're now competitors so it's you know it's a robust environment it what, what I say about Hollywood right it's a great time to be a listener or a viewer. It's a little tougher if you're the producer because you just got more competition. But that's you know, that's life.
0: Yeah, it's I mean it's it's like when I was starting NRO, National Review Online, um um I remember when the Wall Street Journal launched Opinion Journal. I think I've talked about this before on here, but um and I was freaking out because I the way I was saying it at the time was I felt like I was the hardware store that sold two kinds of nails, rusty and not rusty. And then here comes, you know, Home Depot moving across the street. And my dad, who was a media guy for his entire life in one way or the other said, you know, look, Johnny, you're looking at it the wrong way. You don't want to be in any business where people smarter than you, um, look at what you're doing and say, that's a really dumb idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> you want to be in a business right. where you got there before the smart money did their due diligence. <laughs> and, um, right. And it right. turned out that Opinion Journal was fantastic for National Review Online because, first of all, it vastly expanded the market of people right. who were willing yeah. to read online stuff. And it legitimized writing for the web in a way that, um,
1: you know, was very, very helpful to us as well. I, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I, And you're also trying to, like, you're trying to develop patterns in people. So if it's a new pattern, which is, like, to go on the web and read stuff, you know, in your lunch hour um, – you, you need help to do that, right? I mean, you, you absolutely need you know, Uber, and, and Uber is helped by Lyft, and Lyft is helped by Uber. I, I right. firmly believe that because it just kind of creates the pattern of, oh, yeah, I can uh, – help. someone else is helping sell the category, which is something you always want. You, know, you don't want to be selling the category. You want to be selling your product within that category.
0: Yeah, um, I remember at the time there used to be a great, very uh, – maybe it's still there um, – funky coffee shop in Adams Morgan where I used to live, this neighborhood in D.C., Called I think called Trist, and I remember the owner of the place mm. telling me
1: it's a coffee place. Interesting and uh, coffee. Um, You're, and and co- but when you say coffee, you mean just just the caffeinated beverage that was originated in South America. The or beverage, is it like, yes. okay. Yes, is, uh, I'm going to you know, go ask Trist for your coffee. There's no <laughs> euphemism to it whatsoever. All right, All right. listen. And, you know what? You, we'll play it that way. We'll play it that way. <laughs> Married guy, guy like, you got a kid, dog. You, you seem normal. We'll play it that way the
0: guy was saying how much he he liked starbucks because if it hadn't been for starbucks the consumer
1: would never be educated to spend 3 bucks for a cup of coffee <laughs> that's true that's really true and the benefit for you guys especially nro was that you had this sort of more spontaneous fun uh, club feel like clubhouse feel and i remember yeah. having a, dinner was uh, going this, this is how how weird this was i went to a dinner that a restaurateur put on to introduce a wine. This is a long time ago, in uh, in Santa Monica, and um, one of the guys. Uh, there's a bunch of guys there. This is Santa Monica. I saw my name tag and said, "Oh, like oh, my 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 seat," and said, "Oh, I'm a huge fan." And I just thought, okay, well, he listened to me on the radio because I do this radio commentary, or maybe he, you know, he's a TV nerd he sees my name on the crawl, whatever. And he's, no, 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 no. National Review. Um, and then he and his friends, there's four of those four guys there were talking about how their lunch hour is spent sitting around the computer reading the corner. Yeah. And that's something that the journal could never do. Those big companies can never do it. They never get it right. They're too busy worrying about, was well, this is this journal? Would, would we print this in the paper? All that stuff. Yeah. And they didn't get the spontaneity and the community building of um, – of the web, which is something that you got and, uh, and NRO had in spades, right? That was really what made it, um, magnetic when it first started. Yeah. I mean, and that was
0: what, you know, our friend, Andrew Breitbart, you know, he yeah. was very honest, he was like, I'm ripping this off to do it for the Huffing the original Huffington post. Yeah, right. Um, he was like, I'm just doing, I'm going to, this is the model I'm going to do it as the corner. And, but, but for Hollywood and, uh, it worked for a while until, you know, the laws of entropy and decay, um, yeah, Sullivan's took law
1: there. took over. Oh, Sullivan's law took over, which is right. that any 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 organization that's not expressly right wing becomes left wing over time. Well, but then the great thing about it was the subversiveness of Gutfeld doing these hidden posts. Yeah, like, you know that's <laughs> so weird. And the strange thing was that it was also unlikely the whole Huffington Post because. I remember going to a par- Huffington Post party and seeing Ariana, who I knew slightly, still know slightly. And I was saying, I, I, I love you. I still love your house. And she said, oh, that's right. Yeah, you've been here before because I think she, you know, she just really become famous um, in in um, in show business circles, meaning she just really become liberal. And so she in her head, she had divided. She just crossed the line and never looked back. Uh, except that there were some people like me who remembered the last time I was in this house was when you hosted David Horowitz's wedding. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is one of my favorite things <laughs> to ever to say. Because her face kind of like went blank and like confused and then a weird recognition. And then, and then kind of like, you know, she's a charming person. Like kind of a smiley. Oh yeah, I remember that. It was like a million years ago. But it wasn't. It was only a few years before. But a million years ago in a lifetime, you know. All right, since we're on the subject of uh, West
0: Coast, so I'm at, for readers who don't know, I am currently in Bend, Oregon, which is truly lovely. Um, I mean, the, yeah. the politics and the, the, the sort of mini-Leviathan-ness of the place are a little vexating, vexish, vexating, vexing, vexing. Um, but, vexatious, I think, right? Vexing, um, oh, vexing. Vexing, yeah. Vexing, yeah. Um, Bend is vexatious. The rules are vexing because mm-hmm. they vex me. Great podcast. Um, I know. This is gold. gold. Anyway, or vexation puns screams America, (laughs) Um, but I am, I am, I am, uh, every time I come out to the West coast, it is amazing how out of the loop I feel from what's going on in Washington. Um, even if I'm trying to stay up on it, you know, even if I'm out here for work, it is a, the three hour time zone thing alone. Like, how do you – do you care that when you wake up in the morning, the conversation about politics has already been going on for for at least three
1: hours? (laughs) Let's see. Here's the thing. I don't really care about the conversation about politics because it hasn't really been going on. It's only been going on on Twitter, which I do not believe is real. Uh, Or it's been going on on uh, the news channels, which I also don't believe is real because those are just designed every day, no matter when you turn on, whatever whatever times when you're listening, you're you're in – the news always feels urgent and breaking and oh my God, breaking news. It's always uh, just in this, we are learning now and it's some crazy nonsense that doesn't matter. So I actually don't, I don't notice what I do notice is that I am able to schedule calls with people, um, on the when I'm on the West Coast, who are on the East Coast with incredible ease because I don't mind you know saying how about seven a.m. That's fine seven a.m. for me ten a.m. for you perfect. Whereas when I'm on the West uh, East Coast, which I am like half the year, it's miserable because the, I'm still working in essentially I'm still working on a, in a West Coast business that's West Coast headquartered. So executive people feel nothing about saying hey can we can we just have a let's just set the conference call for like five thirty or six just end of the day and like well that's <laughs> nine o'clock my time and I am. um I have, The cocktail hours is over. Even it's not even. Yeah, no. You're 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 you hugging the, co- the the bartender for <laughs> yeah. what a great time <laughs> <Right>. you had. <have. laughs> yeah, right. I'm, ba- I'm 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 at that point. I'm even I'm making uh, um, bargains with God never to drink again, if only <laughs> he'll get me home safe. So, um, uh, so I don't know. So so for me, for the, what my actual life, I, I, I don't mind it. I, it's a, or or I should say it's a small price to pay. But it it is a good discipline probably for somebody who's steeped in the brew as, you know, such as yourself to, um, you know, to uh, to like be behind because you will realize that you're not actually behind.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And this has been very helpful for me to sort of get out of some of that stuff and um, have conversations with people, even relatives about. It's amazing how little of the day to day Twitter stuff, the day to day breaking news stuff actually filters down to normal people of the left or the right. You know, um, there really is this bubble of conversation going on that makes everything feel adrenaline soaked and instantaneous. And, oh, this is the next big thing. And right
1: And since this is all on Twitter. It does feel like this, this, that there's a conversation happening that's really urgent and happening now. And that, you need to jump in because you're, you know, you're a, your your job is to sort of discuss and analyze the passing scene. But I mean, just to get back to Padoretz for a minute. i I can, I'll, I'll look look at Twitter, you know, a couple times a day on my phone, and, and John will be tweeting something that is totally elliptical. I do not understand what he's responding to. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's referring to. There's no link. It's just that he's in the middle of a conversation, and it's not it's not threaded, so I can't go back. It's just yeah. that John was just watching something or talking to somebody or saw something and just decided to tweet about it as if we're all part of that same fabric of conversation and um and and we're not. I don't think we are, or at least I'm not, but I mean, it's not like you
0: aren't required to stay on top of some of this stuff. you are um you're not purely a Hollywood auteur who well. comes out from your. <laughs> You know, retirement <laughs> as a cobbler in Venice. Yes. <laughs> Dabble in
1: politics. It's marvelous what you little political people do. You're just up to such <laughs> interesting things. <laughs> it, was, it was an old lady. I forget who it was. it was. It was like Anne. Who was the one that Fred Astaire and Anne somebody. And she was a dancer. I forget her name. She was a really super old lady. And um, it was revealed this is before they sent out screeners for the Oscars. It was a reveal that the the members of the Academy were like these old people, and then some of them were like the Charlie's Angels, and like it was weird. It was like being a member of the Motion Picture Academy was at one point was really easy to do, and they hadn't seen any of the movies. Somebody did a poll. I think the LA Times did a poll of the Academy viewer, Academy members who'd seen the movies, and it was like five percent. And this is something that, like, I think Harvey Weinstein really exploited quite well. So, people were voting on movies they hadn't seen. And the people voting on the movies were always really old. And Ann and Miller's, Ann Miller. And so, someone said to Ann Miller, um, um, uh, Have you seen any movies? No, I haven't seen any movies. Uh, are you going to vote? Oh, of course, of course. It's so important to the young people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, like, right. it's like, she thought it was her duty to not know anything about the <laughs> movies at vote because the young people so important to them. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got to feel like we're Well, I'm gonna try to keep up because I you know the politics is so important to the young people. <laughs> but I don't, I don't. I don't. i I'm. I try. I try. I try as much as I can. But the some stuff I just find. Um, I don't know. Also, like it. it I don't think it's. Good for me, the anger, right? The getting angry about stuff, and I, and I'm, um, and I'm, I guess I'm too easily angered about. I mean, this is something we should talk about if you if you, if you want. I mean, I know it's your sure. guess, but um, it is impossible for me not to fall very quickly into the thing that you hate, which is whataboutism. Mm-hmm. And I've had a hard time with it because I really do feel. I mean, I'm, when I'm sitting, I was sitting at dinner. Um, uh, a few days ago, with a writer, um, with Andrew Clavin. I was just, you know, was Andrew Clavin. He was a great writer, wonderful mystery writer, a conservative guy, As and one of the sweetest guys around. A really lovely, one of the nicest man. guys around. It's yeah. incredibly funny. I mean, he can make me laugh. Like there aren't that many people. He can. He's a very funny guy, and he's basically, uh, you know, he's a he's a Trump agnostic in that sense that he thinks that Trump is a piece of shit. Like, can you say that on this he's a horrible person? But um, but you know, I don't know. He's doing the right. He's doing the good stuff. So what do I? What am I going to say, right? And um, and then my other friend, is a producing partner of mine, who's on the left, uh, uh, and I'm sort of in the middle. But when I'm talking to my, I'm literally at the middle of the table. When I'm talking to my friend who's more of a Democrat, I'm furious about the way they have treated uh, conservatives, Republicans, and in the media. Forever. I'm furious about the double standard. It makes me crazy. But then when I turn to to, the same dinner in the same forkful. Right. And I realize that I'm probably not the person who should be um, uh, uh, commenting on this because I don't. I'm not consistent. Depending on who I'm talking to is depending on what I'm really mad at. I'm really mad at Trump's president and I'm really mad that, that suddenly all these people who said John McCain was a racist now say he was an American hero. That suddenly all these people who say that uh, you know um, that what Trump did to, what what he said on that Access Hollywood tape is, is, is um, disqualifying, made all sorts of elaborate curlicue arguments for Ted Kennedy and Bill Clinton. And it just seems to me like, well, uh, and I know it's wrong, um, but in a way, Hey, here's my theory, and I'll then I'll shut up. What aboutism? This is the what about president. We elected him to embody what That's all he's doing right now. That's that. That's the, basically the the thrust of his popularity is that he is a giant president. What about? I think that's I think that's largely right.
0: I mean, I like I loved his tweet. I, I can't remember if it was this morning or yesterday morning because of all the peyote, but um, where he said. Uh, any story that has anonymous source in it, um, don't believe because it's just not true. This White House almost daily has on-background briefings where they tell reporters you can only attribute to this to sources familiar with the president's thinking. <laughs> Donald Trump rose up through the tabloid stuff right, as an anonymous source about himself. <laughs> And, and like, and so the, that kind of stuff, and yeah. so look, I agree with you. And, and I, um, there's very little of the media criticism that I see out there in the age of Trump that I pro, that I categorically disagree with. Um, but some of the, what about of it? I find vexatious because, you know, if, if your response to Donald Trump doing something bad is to say, well, what about Hillary? Um there are a couple things that are, you know, it that overlooks the fact that Donald Trump is the president of the United States. It also overlooks the fact and she's not. And it also overlooks the fact that the election's over, and it also overlooks the fact that um, at least among conservatives, uh, we're not supposed to judge the sitting Republican president by the same standard that we would judge the um person that they beat in the last election. But I don't want to get it because I the last episode of this podcast, I got into a huge Trump thing and I don't want to do that again. My point, is, the, the problem for me, and I agree with you, is that, you know, when when William F. Buckley, I'm sorry, when George Will um, got his col- syndicated column for the first time in the 70s, he was like, oh, my God, how am I going to write two columns a week? And he asked Bill Buckley for advice and Buckley said, oh, that's easy. At least two things a week will annoy you write about that. And for me as a columnist, a huge chunk of the only way you can do this, I mean, I'm coming up on 20 years as a columnist and it's a grind and I've watched better writers than me and um, worse writers than me who are harder working. Lots of people fall by the wayside just because they couldn't grind it out week after week for 20 years. And um, and one of the things that makes it possible to write a column is the just the annoyance factor and that's a real problem right now because the anno- the annoyance factor used to be per- for me used to be perfectly lined almost perfectly lined up with my ideological and political dispositions and now i'm i'm annoyed in a 360 degree frame and that just makes things much more um makes it much more difficult to figure out you know to keep your bearings in this weird moment, because I find so much of the anti-anti-Trump stuff incredibly cynical and dishonest. And I find so much of the what about us stuff. And also I find it, you have to be really careful about, you know, the strange new respect problem of having Mm -hmm. liberals who, when liberals are actually, you know, like all of a sudden, if I'll say something about how crappy CNN's reporting is, all these liberals will all of a sudden like swarm on Twitter and say, Jonah,
1: you yeah, you're than going me. back. You're better than this, you know. Uh, you're just becoming one of them, just just for money. I'm sure, just because you want the money. Like what? what? Like everybody always says that you're selling out. Where like, is this selling money? out? <laughs> Please, like I would love to. Just who, who? Where is all this money I want? <laughs> that someone's going to pay me to say some bad stuff about somebody. Um, <laughs> it's like you're selling out. Um, I, 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 get that. It's, it's a, it's to me the, I don't know, having living, having lived here for so long. I mean, I, I do remember having people, people have been saying this to me for almost 30 years. I mean, I've been working in show business for 28 years, right? So for at least 28 of those, I've been, a, for 27 of those, at least have been a known moderate Republican at at the very least, which here is basically, you know, a Trumpist, right? And people felt very comfortable saying things to me like, well, you know, I like you. I mean, because you're not, you know, a Nazi, hateful Nazi um or like you know I'm really surprised that like you're not I mean when I, heard, I you're not a bad one like they they they're they're they feel comfortable telling me that I'm not a, a nazi um and, and that was even that was about you know George W Bush George H. W. Bush, when I, I think he was well he was re- when he's running for, for his his reelect yeah I was you know, working uh every single republican um Bob Dole was a racist, um, Jack Kemp was a ra- – they're all horrible, right? So that's right. That's, that's, the, that's the religion here. And so I do have this residual anger about that, which I never really thought I did until President What About. And uh, and President What About is that, that's the part of me that – the only part of me – that I, I I say could you know is grateful for this is um, this mess is that part and it's not a good part it's not a smart part it's not the one I, not the part that I'm pr- most proud of but I can't deny that I feel that and I can't deny that it makes a big difference to me um, even if it yeah, but here, here, here's an example. Like last two weeks and two weeks ago, I was having I was at a party, great friends of mine, lovely people, everyone's loads of fun. And like you know, they 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 know they're like, hey, we're not going to talk about Trump, right? And I said, well, we can talk about him because I probably agree with you about him. Um, and then we're all sitting around, and someone says, well, you know, I just want to know, like, we're, like, you know, I'm not I'm not a big big pro Democrat partisan, you know, I'm I vote independent, I vote like I vote for the candidates. what he always say, right, I vote for the can of uh, that but you know why couldn't your party I think your party's on saying well, what you know they could have voted for Jeb Bush you know what what, what if they voted for Jeb Bush that would have been great <laughs> yeah that would have been great and then we would have had this horrible I mean this horrible uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh right like, well whoa, Brett Kavanaugh would have been I mean I think literally was on the list number one list that the Bush campaign produced for a potential you know court appointees um, what? Yeah. Brett Kavanaugh. He's a Bush, basically a moderate Republican. He's a Bush guy. I went to, I went to college with him and he's, and this, there was this look of st- stunned. And I said, look, cause that's the thing is that Jeb Bush was president. You'd hate him too. And they're like, well, I would be really critical. Like, like nobody, you know, Anyway, that's a long winded way of saying that, uh, I live in, um, I live in, in, in Washington DC basically politically.
0: Yeah. So, um, let's get out of this for a second. Um, uh, so my um, sorry, was I boring you? No, no, no. I just say you know it's more politics,
1: you know. I, I, I get you. I get it.
0: Um, and uh, I mean, we could talk about this monkey business thing with Ron DeSantis, but it just would get you know, get crazy. So, um,
1: <laughs> what do you think? What, since we're you brought it up, what do you think?
0: I think so. The, the reason, the only reason it comes to mind is this is a perfect example of one of these things where if. And I just haven't because I, I haven't, well, you know, had the energy to chime in. I'm supposed to be on vacation. But if I chimed in and said, guys, look, I can't stand Ron DeSantis. I think he's beclowned himself as a as as a politician by, you know, the way he's run for for governor. But the idea that he was deliberately, you know, an obvious not just deliberately, but obviously dog whistling racism about his black opponent. I just think it's dumb. I just think it's just not true. Um and uh, and this, it, to me, it's a binders full of women moment where the, the echo chamber media sort of liberals bring to it exactly the interpretation that they want. And then they're stunned, stunned that to someone they might like, um, uh, or think is honest would, would disagree. And so they would immediately assume that it's, you're doing it to sell out. You know, here's my right. check for defending Ron DeSantis for, <laughs>
1: <you> <laughs> for <know? laughs> monkey up or something. Right. You know? And,
0: and I find that stuff so friggin exhausting. And one of the nice things about being on break during easily two of the craziest weeks of the Trump presidency and not having to feel like I have to like right. blog about it or tweet about it is you get to sort of hold your fire a little bit and post more videos of your dogs. And, um, uh, but yeah, no, I just, it, it, like, I, I think it's dumb. Do you disagree? Do you think he, w- he went in there saying, oh, oh, you know, I live in one of the most, I'm running for governor, in one of the most diverse States in America. I'm really going to add votes to my column by insinuating that my black opponent
1: is a simian." Do you think that that's what he was doing? <laughs> no, no, I, 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 don't, I really don't. But I, I, and I, I I, and the logic of it is weird it's like you the if you're a racist and you are trying to appeal to racists and you want racists to vote for you you can't do better than having a black opponent you're you're done you don't need a dog whistle right if you're if you're a, a white supremacist or a racist in in, in Florida you're going to vote for him you're not going to vote for the other guy that's done that you that you, that is a base that you do not need to even touch because they're they're already there right um, so I don't think it, I, I think what he wanted to say was we shouldn't monkey around and maybe there's a part of his brain that said, don't use that word. And he, what he really wanted to say, is we shouldn't fuck this, F this up. Right. And he got all confused and bollocksed up in his head cause he's, you know, second rate politician basically. Um, and, and, and he, we're living in a world where that is not, you know, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, because it's like already everyone – everyone has decided to – it's funny because the dog whistle is really to the other side because it's a subtle signal that they're picking up that suggests that he is in, in deep in his subconscious brain deeply, deeply racist and that this is a Freudian slip, right? that is revealing something about him. That's that's the dog whistle, but racists don't need it because he's running against an African-American. So well, they've they already decided. You know? But this gets to the, the, the what about a stage, right? I mean, so
0: like I wrote a piece about this for the 2012, around the 2012 convention where, and I, I may be getting the quote slightly wrong, but I am not making this up, where MSNBC got an advanced copy of Mitch McConnell's speech. And Mitch McConnell went on the, gave a completely,
1: completely
0: banal sort of Chamber of Commerce joke about Barack Obama playing too much golf, and that I guess it was um, who's I can't remember who the interviewer was. He was the guy who had an accent. I, I think he was of Indian descent or something. He used to be on CNN International or something. Uh. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I don't anyway, know. so I, I, mean, me. I don't.
1: I don't know because I don't. I don't see color like that. I, I understand
0: that. Yeah. Well, I was. I, I only reason I remember is because I celebrate diversity so much, unlike <laughs> you, that I was so happy to see that they were, you know, making a right, network right. look like America. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, um, uh, uh, what's his face? Lawrence O'Donnell is being interviewed, and Lawrence O'Donnell says, "With I cannot. I cannot exaggerate." The moral seriousness of his tone, you know, it's kind of like when someone is incredibly morally serious to you, and it is so pathetic that all you want to do is like take a feather and tickle their nose and make fun (laughs) of them about it. And he's like, "Mitch, what Mitch McConnell is doing here." Is the class? You know, he has script. He has he has speechwriters who could have gone a thousand different ways. They chose to do this because what they are trying to do is associate the first African American president with the lifestyle of Tiger Woods. And this was the middle. Yeah, no, it it, it, it it was maybe worse than the way I'm describing it. It was not better than the way I'm describing it. <laughs> and, and and they go on about how, and like, and the, 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 the interviewer who, you know, is helping make America look like America pushed back a little and said, really, do you really think that was the intended message? And he goes, oh, these people are masters of the racist dog wetzel, blah, 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 goes on and on about it. And the interviewer just goes, wow. And the interview ends. And, um, They've been doing this stuff for a really, really long time, and it's very hard to parse because it's weird. It's like um, – remember when Mitt Romney spoke to the NAACP and, um, and all of a sudden that was – and and he, refer, and he said to the audience, you know, was reaching out to him, Obamacare hasn't been great, you know, for African-Americans or something like that. And this was seen as the equivalent of a cross-burning Right places like right. the Huffington Post, right, and so, I, it, it to me, it's this is nothing new. I just find it all so pathetic. The only thing that makes it interesting is trying to gauge how sincere it is among liberals, and I think the sincerity makes it more interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. no less stupid. No, I, but but well, actually, kind of more stupid because it's because it's sincere. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's just a it's just. It's just uh, Especially the 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 way that language has now been, it, the, the 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 formal language has now been turned into so this kind of nineteenth century uh, uh, formal social event. You know where people had to say certain things and bring visiting cards and fold down the corner in just the right way, or they'd be written out of society. I mean, I was you know just talking to other people, it's like, like, well, you know, this this, this movie out is doing really really well. Crazy Rich Asians, best selling book, they turned it into a movie. It's all Asians. Uh, almost 100% Asians in that movie. It's a romantic comedy that uh, is set in Singapore, and everybody's Asian, and it's called Crazy Rich Asians. And um, it uh, and someone said, oh, you know, it's, it's just great because it's diverse.
0: No, that's I I got into it's not diverse. On on, I got into trouble in trouble on this on Twitter. Fox News of all people said, you know, uh, movie with diverse cast wins, you know, at the box office. And like, I
1: was like, wait a second, no. It's the opposite of diverse. But also, that doesn't ma- That doesn't mean, and I don't think that's a problem. I don't we either. Don't have to- we have to lie about it. It did huge. And by the way, the first week. Like, so this is a classic way to release a picture like this, right? It did great in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and in New York. Its first week. And it was predominantly 100% Asian. That is, a huge Asian audience went to go see that. And they went to go see it because they'd never seen a movie with Asians in it before. And there were a lot of people writing very, mo- I read some wonderful moving things. People were tweeting about it. Asian Americans tweeting about look what this movie meant to them.
0: Never seen um, a mainstream Hollywood non martial yeah. arts movie.
1: Yeah. And it's a romantic it. comedy. And, right. you know, nobody is saying uh, Honorable Son. You know, like it was none of that. Right. Right. And, um, and that's that's fantastic. And then the next weekend. Right. Because it did so well it, amongst a, a, a rather a rather undiverse but specific audience. But it did really well with them. It went huge. Like the, it, all the Asians who've seen it have seen it. Like now it's just general variety American audiences. And that's what I mean. It's like it, it should be. I was trying to tell you something the other day it's like diversity is the wrong thing we should be going for variety variety right. is what we're going for and the reason that a bunch of white people are going to see this movie is because oh, it's kind of funny it's a romantic comedy and it's all set in Singapore and it's kind of cool and we're going to it's a little bit of a travel log cuz you get to see a different city and um and, and there's there's no there is zero evidence in the history of Hollywood or even popular culture that people only want to read or see or watch or commit to Things that reflect their specific identity—that just isn't the case. They want to go a little. They want variety, and we now call it diversity, but it isn't diverse. <laughs> it's variety. So, no, look, I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, it's like you know the idea that people
0: want to see more diversity in in Fiddler on the Roof. You know, is <laughs> yeah, sort right, of right? right. right? And <laughs> it, this is sort of analogous because this is on my in my head these days because I've you know just done another one of these cross country drives. Is that, you know, I'm a huge booster of federalism. I want to push power down on the most local level possible and all that kind of stuff. And whenever I talk to college kids about this stuff, I'm like, look, you know, look, diversity is fine. Diversity is good. You know, by all means, let's have a rich cross-section of people from different ethnic and racial and gender, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's all fine I, I, on a college campus or on, you know, on new, nightly news broadcasts or on mastheads. That's all, you know, fine. We can have those arguments. But you know, this country would be a much more interesting country to drive across if the watchword weren't diversity, but variety. Right, right. You know, and so some towns would be, yeah, okay, they're all white. Who cares? I mean, as long as it's not by law, right, um, you know, you can't say black people can't come here or Asian people can't come here. But, you know, there are a lot of all white towns in this country alre- already. Some of them are very Christian. Some of them are not. What's what's You know, what's, You know, historically black colleges aren't intensely diverse.
1: But they do add to variety. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean, I I, I have two two real life examples for that. One, I spent last weekend in Florence, Alabama, and Florence, Alabama is in the middle of nowhere. Basically, it's about an hour and a half, maybe two hours south of Nashville, uh, uh, just over the Tennessee border. In where Muscle Shoals is. So, if you're a music fan, uh-huh. that's where Muscle Shoals is. It's where the recording studios. That's where the famous recording studio is. It's kind of a music town in a lot of ways, uh, and it's put on. As a, it's a week. Again, kind of crazy. We can put on by this designer uh, Billy Reed, who's this wonderful guy, and he's a friend of mine. He grew up in Louisiana, and he now he's, his headquarters is in Florence, Alabama, where his wife grew up, and he's raising his family there. But he's like a fancy clothing designer. He's got, like, fancy boutiques in New York and places like that. Uh, You know, he has has a fashion week thing and people walk him down the runway and he does, you know, he's got one of these Cody Awards. He's a big deal, right? But he's a hometown kind of guy and he throws this thing he calls the shindig and he invites all the, he's a music nut so he invites all these music acts to come and play live and, like, in little venues and you kind of go and eat and drink yourself silly and listen to great music. And half of the you – know, there's a part of the uh, people who are there are from Florence and just like like Billy. And then some people who are there are like me who like know him through other channels um, like Southern Foodways and things. And then there's a whole bunch of people there who are in Florence, Alabama who are from New York City in the fashion business. And when they're walking up and down the street, it's hilarious because they they – they ex- they have come down to this place expecting all sorts of craziness. And instead, what they're getting is um, yeah, small town America where people are kind of cool. and yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's no Confederate flags. You don't see any of that. And it's in Alabama, so you could see that, but you don't see it. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is like, if you're ever driving through Iowa and you drive through a little town called Fairfield, Iowa. Fairfield, Iowa is the headquarters of the Transcendental Meditation movement, huh. and it's entirely kind of run by the people who run the the. It's a nonprofit, but it's the Transcendental Meditation thing, and uh, <laughs> they're like you go there, and it's not the Moonies or anything. They're not. They don't. They're not like in a cult. They just practice. Transcendental meditation twice a day, twenty minutes in the morning, twenty minutes in the afternoon. Something that I do, and they do it, and they, it's like there are all sorts of variety religions, but they have this one thing in common, and, and they, they marry so they their have cousins. A, and yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, they, they marry they marry multiple cousins because they can you can be married to many many cousins, and they uh, and so they, they they do they meditate, and so the I, I met one, it's years ago what well, got me interested in this. I didn't really follow through until recently, but I met the guy who is the golf coach. At the high school in Fairfield, Iowa, nice. And he is he practices TM, and all of the kids on his team practice TM, and they win like all the multi-state tournaments all the time. And so, other parents from uh, surrounding communities who think maybe that this is some kind of weird little cult, they don't really get it, they don't really like it, but they know that he's (laughs) winning. Whatever he's doing, that he's a really a winning coach. So he has a big business in private lessons of kids from the area who come. And, you know, they think he's going to, you know, first teach them how to swing a golf club. But really what he first does is teach them how to sit quietly and stare at the ball. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, so, and, it's, and he's really, really popular in Fairfield, Iowa and in the surrounding counties and towns because he wins. The, his his students really do really well. And um, I don't know. That's just a variety, right? It's kind yeah,
0: of cool. yeah. When you go to New Orleans, do you want, you know, Creole, Cajun? you know new orleans jazz or do you want there to be some sort of cultural mandate that you know there be more schubert and more <laughs> you know you know pickled yeah. herring i mean it just seems to me you you know the people the, this is one thing that just drives me the cognitive dissonance of people who have bumper stickers that say keep austin weird don't right. have the sort of transcendental imagination that says okay but let's keep branson branson you know, I mean, let, I wanted it to be a weird a country with lots of weird <laughs> stuff yeah, as you drive right. across, you know, I totally and, agree. And and that gives you more, you know, the, and, the, the, it gives you more opportunities to find the institutions that are or the communities that are appealing to you. When you have this or homogenized, every town has the same kind of malls, every town nice. has the same kind right. of culture that's fewer opportunities for the pursuit of
1: happiness. And it kind of drives me nuts. But, but I, I want to remind, remind, you, you remind you of one thing, which is really important is that we're, we're going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to be okay. It's a big country, a lot of weird stuff in it, but we're going to be okay. Like we all did. We have managed to get this far. And there is a place in Fairfield, Iowa, that is the headquarters of the international transcendental meditation uh, movement. And there is a branch Branson, Missouri, and there's a weird, cool Austin. And the, we're going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. Um, as long as we can continue to marry our cousins.
0: So, uh, <laughs> very quickly, I guess I, I, my amiensis, um, my wow. uh, Jack Butler, who's on vacation uh, this week, um, uh, he wanted me to ask you how you actually got into um, <laughs> writing for Hollywood.
1: It was just because you were swanning around with the right yeah. social circles at Yale? That no, you. I mean, listen. I'm I'm so old that that, that that there were no social circles anywhere. Maybe Harvard with a lampoon a little bit when I were uh, in '80s. I graduated '87 in college in '87, so there were no nobody knew how to do it. Nobody knew what what there was. The business was not it wasn't like the business was closed. It was just weirdly clubby and very centered around Southern California. And there was like there's no way to, to. I didn't even know the first thing about how to do it. Like you, how to break in. I just. I graduated from college, and I thought, well, you know, I should be an investment banker. And so I, uh, I actually applied to one investment bank and one, because I I targeted, I figured there's only one bank that would have me, a totally unqualified person, but who has the right pedigree. And that was Brown Brothers Harriman. And they were nice enough to have a, give me an an interview uh, where they just continually pointed out that I had no skills in anything related to investment banking. I was an English major and I'd taken zero math classes and um, I didn't really know. At that point, You had to at least know what uh, Lotus One Two Three was, which was sort of the first piece of spreadsheet software that you know came on the market. Mike Milken used to say that the '80s, the 1980s, were brought to you by Lotus One Two Three, the ability to make these rapid calculations and to you know uh, on on you know sort of specific parts of a bond issue, right? So I didn't know anything about that, and the guy was like, "Well, you know," and I had one funny exchange in that interview, which I still remember, which he said, "I don't." I just don't see any economics. There's no economics on your on your transcript. And I said, no, no. Well, you know, I said, well, you know what? Yale uh, economics classes are taught almost entirely by Marxists. And I'm assuming that Brown, this Harriman operates under slightly different principles. <laughs> and he sort of laughed and said, yeah, that's a good answer. But no. And so he was like really nice. He just said to me, look, if you're really interested in this, um, you know, you should you know maybe you take a little time and see if you can figure out the the quantitative side of it and come back. But 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 you shouldn't. You should not move forward with your enthusiasm to be an investment banker here or anywhere else. I think he and was it, right. He was totally right. Of course, in October of 1987, you know there was a huge crash, so all my fancy fancy friends were like looking for work. But uh, so then, I, I what I really want to do is, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to write. I wanted to write uh, funny little stuff, and written a couple plays in college. So. Uh, the, uh, the my playwriting teacher at Yale said, you should just go to L.A. You should go to film school. So I did. You know, I'm glad he didn't say you should get an apartment in Budapest. I would have done that. But he said, go to, go to L.A. So I went to UCLA film school. And I just hung out for a year writing. It was so easy, man. Oh, it's the best. One class a week on Wednesday. That's like perfect, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, my master's. That's
0: that's, that's two long weekends in a row. That's yeah, you figured that
1: one out, right? Um and so uh so I wrote a couple of scripts, but I really didn't and I wrote a script once and uh you had to read it you know in class and people would read it out loud. And so some girl in class looked at me and she had kind of this withering tone and she said this this feels like television. Which <laughs> I I was supposed to take as an insult but I just instead I thought oh oh television and that's so. Then I, stood, I then I asked somebody how do you do this, and uh, it was a simple process. And you just you write a bunch of spec scripts, you know, of shows that are on the air, and then you send them to agents. And like how you find the agencies, you watch TV and you look at the. And it still works, by the way. You look at the crawl, or look at the credits, and the lower level writers are the ones you want to look at. Like right? the one, not the big ones because they're too fancy. The lower level writers, and then you call up the writers' guild. But back then you had to call. And you were you could give them the name of three writers. You asked for the agency department and then they would and you, you could only do three writers at a time and they would tell you who the agents are. So you found out who which agents are representing which writers on which shows that you like. And they and they by definition those agents are representing writers at the lower level, which what you are. So you're not going to the world's biggest agent to represent you because they're right. a- do it, and then you know, you, I found three names, and I sent the scripts to three people. And two of them said, "Hey, come on in." And one of them was great, and she signed me. And then um, that agency was packaging every TV show on, uh, which I did not know at the time. Every TV show in the world that was of any good—it was Cheers and T- Taxi, all that stuff, right? And um, and then four weeks later, she said, "You know, put on a clean pair of pants and head over to uh, Cheers because you have a, a meeting. There's money in the budget." There always is in, in these in these shows for a, a um, staff writer, which is like uncredited staff writer, and it's usually called sometimes called in old times it's called a term writer because you're on a term deal like eight weeks or ten weeks. And we were it was near the it was the second half of the season, so there were only like ten twelve weeks left. So they said, yeah, I just come here for twelve weeks and sit around, and that was what that's that was what I did. <laughs> You can't do that now, by the way. If you're listening to this and you wrote all that down because you to trying to break into show business, <laughs> tough luck. You can't do it now, kids. Are, everybody, if you go to college campus, go next time. You go to camp- campus a lot. Mm-hmm. I just ask this: How many people in this audience have a spec script? And I bet you, I bet you, a lot of them do. Yeah. And whereas my my year, like my era, like I didn't even know what that meant. So, because um, it's funny, I just had my. Uh...
0: Talking about phoning it in, my literary agent on the podcast, and I did (laughs) this whole thing about how you want, you know, so you want to write a book, and I asked him all these kind of questions about all this kind of stuff, and he had very similar advice about how to find an agent: is like look in the acknowledgments of books you like, and collect the names of the people who are thanked in the acknowledgments who are their agents, and you know that's one way of finding them. Um, But uh, so when you say, I have two questions. First of all, why was it such an imperative? that your agent tell you to get a clean pair of pants. Did you have some sort of issue about unclean pants until then? And two, um, how does it work now? One, I
1: don't have to answer that. (laughs) I am not on trial here. Uh, two, uh, it, it works roughly the same way. It's just that there's just a bigger, bigger, fatter business. Yeah. And it's harder and harder and harder to, um, to break in. And, um, but that doesn't quite yeah. make sense to me, because it seems to me, you you know, I,
0: I got this advice a long time ago when I was a, you know, and this is a point of like some personal road not taken bitterness on my part, because when I was growing up, I did not want to be a pundit. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I i wanted to like Thank God write um, uh, comic books and sci fi novels and. Ooh. If I thought it were possible to write TV's. So like uh, I would have loved it In the early '90s, I was, I will, I will not reveal. Uh, but I actually wrote a couple spec scripts, or, or two thirds of them, because I wanted to get out of wonkiness. And one of my great frustrations, you know, my friend Craig Turk. Sure. Yeah. So Craig went to Harvard Law. You know, worked on the McCain campaign. He's right. a lawyer and all this kind of stuff. He went off to Hollywood and is a showrunner on all these big shows and all this kind of stuff. And I, who grew up basically like the main character from the TV show Prophet in a refrigerator box watching television 24 hours a day, (laughs) Um, I'm stuck at the American Enterprise
1: Institute talking about, you know, stranded costs and free. But wait, uh, I would say uh, – uh, Jimmy, how it works now is pretty much the same way. It's just harder. And it's also harder, I think, I mean, for better or for worse, however you feel about it, because diversity is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And um, I I heard from a friend of mine the other day whose whose agent told him that that she has been forbidden to sign any new clients who are not diverse um, or not diverse parts of diverse partnerships. So suddenly you see a lot of like, you know, (laughs) partnerships bringing up between amongst writers who may have just met each other the day before. Uh, But I guess the question I was getting
0: at, though, is that when back when I was a television producer on the PBS side of things, my old boss at the production company used to say, you want to get into a business where the pie is growing enough. that you can make mistakes. And that, you know, um, seems to me that television is exploding. Maybe the profit margins are shrinking but the opportunities to write oh, for
1: television are exploding like never before. Now. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's a great time. It's a look, it's a great time to get into the business, right? If you're young and you don't, um, you know, you don't mind uh, living in a crappy apartment in Hollywood or West LA with cottage cheese ceilings, you know, there's, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a, and it's a great time to have, to be, have been in the business for a while. And like, you know, you can kind of make it and you don't, you don't have to work every day and you can do stuff that you're, that interests you. Um, if you're in the middle right now, I mean, if you're in the middle, probably the middle anywhere, but if you're in the middle in show business and you've been here for long enough to get married and have kids and buy a house. And maybe think, okay, I'm going to send them to a fancy private school, and and you're in the middle of that. It's really, 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 really tough because yeah. it's because the business has changed enough that you're not, no one's getting these studio deals. i mean, I had a studio deal for 12 years. It was insane, right? You don't have that anymore, and you don't have uh, you don't you, if you're even if you're doing interesting work on a great show. It, what if it's Netflix? You're only doing 10 episodes, and they own you for a year and a half. So they they have first dibs on you for about six eight months when you're not working. Um, And so, yeah, maybe you make, I mean, I'm just pulling this number out of of the air. Maybe you make $500,000, right? But that may have to last you two years, three years in a very expensive city. Right. Uh, And in in the the ensuing time when you're not working, you can't take another job because you're in the first position and they have an option on you. And no one really wants to commit to doing your next project if they know that you will have to walk. So, it can be really tough if you're trying to raise kids and you're trying to have a family. That said, I would say to you, just because it's my new kind of attitude here, is that I don't think there's any reason why you can't. It's like I don't think there's a road not taken. The road's still there. You just have to find the time to sit down and write something you really like. Yeah. That's the great news about the business is that it's not it, – I think probably life in general, I would actually say the life in general. You, 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 there isn't a road not taken. Every, the, all the roads are open, you know they have costs associated with them, but they're not impossible. And if it's not I mean, I know people who don't want to like, uh, people who like, well, I don't want to give them my, my I know I, I, I'm talking to a guy right now, he's got a great idea, he's put a lot of effort and time into it, and he's a very, 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 very successful venture capitalist in, on the East Coast. And his problem is he, he doesn't want to give that up, but he doesn't want to do it, but he doesn't want to give it up, right. but he doesn't want to do it. So what he really doesn't want to give up is not I love my job coming in and listening to pitches on the next next app. What he really doesn't want to give up is I love my car and my house, and I love the fact that I can go and spend three months on the Cape. And he's, what he likes is his life. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't
0: have it that well. I mean, I know <laughs> that's, those are the circles you travel in, but. yeah, uh, very yes. well, well,
1: I don't really know how you people live,
0: but. Uh, um, but, you know, but, but this is a point and I've made it on this podcast a bunch of times is that um, the, I have to give talks to like interns and, you know, and, and young staffers at AI or elsewhere all the time. And one of the things I always try to tell them is the great thing about being young is you can be entrepreneurial with your time. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, like you could afford, I mean, you had nothing. So you went to LA, yeah. you
1: know, and what were you, what were you risking? You know? I nothing. <laughs> you know? I was risking the years for but when I was 22 and 23. Right. That was right. it. And who cares?
0: You know, it's like New York city. New York city is a wonderful place to live if you're young and poor and older and rich, anything in right. the middle is rough. And so for me, like I, I have quite a few fiction ideas that I want to pursue at some point. But I just, you know, people say, well, you know, why don't you just do it? And I say, well, because I write a lot as it is. Yeah, I know. It is a huge time suck for me. And I don't have the kind of fu money. I don't have the money that lets me stay at the Cape, you know? And so I, right. I put it off, I germinate, but I meet so many people who aren't writers who have, you know, they have this novel in them. Um, they, um, uh, and they, they, um, you know, they, they constantly talk about how they want to be a writer. And the thing I always tell them is, well, you know, here's the one thing I know that unites all writers. They write, right. Uh, And if if all you do is talk about how you want to be a writer. Um, you're not a writer, right? You can, you can say, well, I fancy myself a writer. I do, you know, but unless you're writing,
1: I'm not saying published, I'm saying, write, Just sitting there and putting in the time.
0: Yeah, and um it's funny. I met this wonderful wonderful man who gave me a drive from a drive to the airport from a venue when the car service didn't show up in Southern California a few months ago. And he was and I don't want I really don't want to sound like I'm making fun of him because he was a wonderful sweet guy, sort of like the kind of guy who makes the is the backbone of this country kind of thing. I I loved him. But he was a very successful guy from the rug business, the carpeting <laughs> business, and he um and he talked about – and he had some great stories about how he built carpets for the White House and all this kind of stuff and – or made carpets for the White House and all these different places and all his business in China. And he kept talking about how he's, he's thought a long time about writing a book um, telling his stories. And for all I know, it actually could work if it was done the right way. But it always reminded me there's this great – and it's too bad Pod isn't here. There's this great scene in The Odd Couple where Felix Unger goes to take uh, writing classes and the guy he sits next to is, you know, this is the episode where he says owed to a 40th floor, or owed to a skyscraper. <laughs> right, right. Right? right, And the guy sitting next to him is this old, menschy Jewish guy from like a deli. And the guy turns to him and says, um, uh, talks about what his writing ambitions are. And he says, I spent 40 years in the upholstery business. I'm going to blow the doors wide open. I hate <laughs> <aim> names.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, if he does it, it's like, I, I, don't, I mean, practically, I would say to you, like, I, I follow you on Twitter and um, I see that you're out with your dogs early. You already get up early. Yeah. Getting up early is, which I don't do, unfortunately. But that's that's a huge boon to your productivity. Um, writing is really hard, and you, it's hard to write a thing and then turn around and write a different thing. Oh, I'm going to write this thing this way from you know eight to noon, and then I have lunch, and then from you know three to five, I'm going to write this other thing completely different. It's really hard to do.
0: Well, it's also hard um, to
1: write on spec for me now. Like
0: I've yeah, been right. Like, no, 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 yeah. I'm the same way. Every now and then, you know, I remember when I first had to do my syndicated column, and the the syndicate said, "Okay, we want you to write." Eight one, eight columns will pay you for them, but they'll never be published. Yeah, okay. And that's just ex- that kind of thing is exhausting to me of writing stuff truly on spec. You yeah. know, it's like writing book proposals is exhausting because it's just like
1: oh. here they say, here's what the people t- This is what people tell me is like, well, if you really love it and it's something you really you're passionate about. That's the best way to do it. And yeah, if you're not passionate enough about it, you're not going to want to get paid. You shouldn't. You maybe shouldn't write it in the first place. I find that to be terrible advice. But I, 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 that is the mar- that is the marketplace speaking. Certainly in Hollywood, which is like because a lot of people will write stuff for free um, because otherwise they'll, it'll never get done and it'll we'll never and they will and it'll never get paid for. Um, you know, you can't you can't sell a script you didn't write. But the, the, but I, the only thing I would say is like is that uh, you, you know those hoarder shows you know, this, yes. the, the, the horde of people would, and they have, you little know, little tunnels. You know them. <laughs> they have little tunnels, you know, and they, and, and they, and when they, when you, when they walk through it the first time, you see the way these people live with the stacks of everything and all these pack and they, and they can they have a little, little trail leads to the kitchen and the one burner you can actually use. And the refrigerator door doesn't quite open all the way. And, and the bathroom has like a little space around the toilet and then a little space around the shower and the sink, but everything else is like piled up. And, um, it's like they don't see it anymore. So when the people walk through with the cameras, they're like kind of seeing it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's like it's always horrible. And then they, they pull the stuff out of the lawn. And I don't. I, I can only watch like one a year because they're just suits, just incredibly depressing and horrifying. Oh, it gives but my wife I, such stress to watch those. I mean, just uh, unbelievable stress. And here's why I think I think it because we know we are we recognize that behavior, and it's not just the hoarding of the physical stuff because some people do, some people don't. I don't, but. that's the inside of your brain and you know it and the inside of your brain's got all this stuff and it's all these patterns and you've like kind of carved out these little neural pathways and ways of reacting to certain things that are basically this kind of like, yeah, we're not going to look in that pile. We're not going to look in that other pile. We're not going to go in that room. And uh, th- that door is closed. If you open that door, uh, this crap going to come tumbling out. And that's kind of the inside of our head. yeah. And all these things are like these patterns, especially when you get older. I think when you're younger, it doesn't matter. But when you get older, all these patterns are kind of built in and it – you don't even notice them. And so sometimes people say things that don't, don't like, well, I, I want to write a book, but I just, you know, I just don't have time and that, or, or some, or I don't have enough sharp pencils or whatever it is. It's like, it's a pattern of saying I want, and then I'm not going to do it. That is like, well, then, you know, and don't want it or do it, but the, I just feel like that's as you get, as I get older, I'm older than you, but that's the thing you got to pay attention to because it really is hoarding. And if you could just empty all that stuff out, maybe you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't write the script. Maybe you wouldn't write the the novel, but it's good to drag all that stuff out on the lawn and see what it is.
0: No, I think that's really, that's a really great way of looking at it. I I mean, I kind of feel like, um, I should go to your house and, burn it
1: down because you've been inside my head. Um, but, uh, well, the, the solution for you, sir, uh, which I, which you're know, probably not old enough yet for it. The solution for you is to, um, uh, is to, is to go on a course of psychedelics, which I really, I'm really honestly suggesting to you, uh, uh-huh. so you know,
0: well, I do have a 15 year old daughter and, um, well, she doesn't need it. You don't have to give her
1: any. She's 15. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I I was wasn't really where I was going
1: with. That oh, okay. <laughs> I I, yeah, I, don't kids, so I don't really know how it works, but you don't yeah. have to share with her. She's fine. She's she's 15. She got a whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's less clutter in her here. Her yeah, yeah. But I, I, actually, I believe that is true. Um, I had I was at this event once, and uh, I was sitting with this this shrink. I mean, a true shrink, a psychiatrist, right? So he's a doctor, plus he can prescribe meds. And I was asking him like questions about these meds. You know, people take this stuff, and you know, and uh, I, I have a, f- a friend in in um, in Silicon Valley. He's an engineer, and he takes a uh, Prozac. He doesn't have, he's not depressed. He has no depression. But Prozac gives him like ten percent more. He thinks betterness in his brain to visualize stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like it was like, yeah, you know, there's no side effects. So I guess I can see why somebody might think that. He said it's not really doesn't really hit that same place that you think it should hit. And he said, the weird thing for me is um this Adderall and the and the ADHD stuff. He said, you know, he's got a bigger practice in New York. He said, uh practice, they have all people coming and bringing their kids and like Everybody's doctor's different, so you know, I'm not criticizing doctors, right? They you get to you're you're a doctor, so your judgment is as good as his, right? They're both doctors. And he said, But I just don't understand why you would give Adderall to kids. They don't have to earn. <laughs> I'm like, that's a really good point. Like, it's okay if they don't, like, they're kids. Like, they're going to figure it out. And if they can't pay attention, then they got to sit still and they have to learn all those things they have to learn. But it's not like, oh, man, I got to get up and do this. I got to do this because if right. I don't do this, we lose the house. I just don't have the energy, the focus to do it anymore. Like, that guy needs Adderall. Like, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. And he was like, it was really interesting to hear him say it. And I, I feel the same way about psychedelics. Uh, kids so it's funny. I, I am. Um, And you can imagine why this is
0: acutely on my mind, having, being on a 6,000 mile road trip. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But I think boredom is one of these wildly underappreciated important parts of adolescence. Yeah. Because it forces your brain to make. To entertain itself, to find new connections, you know, just sort of like, I guess, like transcendental meditation, that thing of my God, this, this drive is going on forever and leading your forehead against the window and just staring off blankly into space with that kill me now. Look, you know, who knows what things your brain goes through in those periods where you kind of like stumble on new open new doors inside your head. Right. And I worry with kids today where, you know, they all have iPhones, they all have iPads, they all have gadgets and boredom. Adolescent boredom is being banished from their lives. And, you know, it's a real struggle um, how to deal with that as a parent. But, you know, I, I can't tell you how much weird stuff I came up with in my head just because I was bored to tears or
1: weird stuff I read yeah. Because I had nothing better to do. Right. I, that's exactly right. And I think it's also true that you know, someone said this to me years ago, and I just thought that person was a moron. I said, y- you're not bored, you are boring. <laughs> and you are boring yourself, yeah. and you're making a choice. Because your brain is like incredibly, infinitely interesting. It has a million different thoughts on it all the time, and um, there's nothing boring about it. It's the, it's by definition, it's not boring. By by the way, if it's boring, jump off a bridge because it's not going to get any better. That's the, your house. That's right? your that's the inside of your house, right? Um, and then the second thing I would say is that I have discovered that right. It, it, that's one of thing. When you know, reach for the phone, you know, I have my phone in my left hand all the time. And whenever there's a, a Which thought. Which is weird because you're right-handed. <laughs> exactly. Whenever there's a weird th- 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 a, 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 a thought or a thing that seems to be leading me to something else, even if it's something else productive, I'll just sort of like instantly try to distract myself with the phone. Like break yeah. this chain because this feels like hard work. Whereas if you just sort of – the idea of sitting and closing your eyes and thinking about you know whatever you're trying to think about, it's amazing how much better you can get and how much – how, how how many resources you have inside your brain that you just don't think you do, and yeah. that's that's a hard thing about kids because you like how do you explain to somebody who's fifteen that no 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 you don't understand you are making the choice to be bored you are you you are pu- punishing yourself and just choosing to be miserable because it, it somehow it satisfies you in some weird way right now but if you weren't if you chose the other way you would find that there's an infinite number of resources inside your brain. And then, and the, and the time would go really quickly. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, even for us though, I mean, like this is podcasts and Twitter, I mean, I think podcasts, the, the advantage of probably, and we'll probably have to close on this stuff, but it brings it kind of full <laughs> yeah. circle. Well, now it's, we're it's, really
1: full, super philosophical at this point. Oh, people, um, are trying, now Jonah, they're not listening. Only, uh, only cantaloupe. Is <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Although it, it is funny when you were talking about hoarder's homes, that is basically if John hadn't won the lottery by marrying this wonderful woman, Ayala, uh, <laughs> that is how John would live. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where where did I put my
1: 1987 spring issue of New Criterion? Don't put your drink on that. Don't put your drink on that. That's a TV guide cover from 1983. The one with my um, two dads on it. Don't put your. Yeah. But
0: uh, podcasting. You know, is I mean, I, I agree with you that one of the reasons why it's it's in a this is the golden age of podcasting, which is kind of a silly thing to say because it's also it's bronze age, right? Because it just started. But um is that I find I, I think the people who uh, that that cable television is so stimulus focused rather than conversation or you know. Uh, it's sort of, it's stimulus or emotional, um, and not conversational or intellectual. And I think, but it's like, you can't be bored if you know about podcasts now and you are remotely intellectually curious, whether you like this podcast or one of the many other fine podcasts at, at Ricochet, um, you can't, you, you, you don't have to have that sort of stare off at the road in front of you boredom anymore
1: either. Right, and and I think, but for adults, it doesn't matter that much. For adults, but I think you you can, and you and 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 there is uh, there is something to the skill, and I think it's a really important skill of being able to sit in the car and stare outside, and and watch that passing movie in the passenger side window or wherever it is, and just do nothing, let your brain do nothing. I mean, uh, you're you're not going to not have thoughts. Brain's got eighty thousand thoughts a you know second or something. So you, you're 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 not going to zone out. You're going to zone in in a way. David okay, Putty was on. onto something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Rob, I want to thank you very much for doing
0: this. Um, Jonah, again, been a pleasure. Say, this has been a, uh, uh, remnant glop joint production. And, um, uh, I guess the next time we'll be talking, we'll have pod back where he will, uh,
1: Complain vociferously about something, but you know it, this was fun. I'm just saying the two of two was kind of fun. Just you, you whatever. We can talk about this offline. Yeah, no, no. I, I thought yeah. it was a very pleasant. I mean, I mean, we could. My guess <laughs> is that when <laughs> we have a post mortem
0: on this, they will say we could have been funnier. But I thought it was, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. But it was a good conversation. Yeah. yeah. Hey, listen for free. You know, you <laughs> pay us. <laughs> will be funny. That's right. <laughs> um, and I, before we guys want to say. It's now three times. Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe. Let's see if he got to the third.
0: Okay. Uh, No, for the third, to test the third, you have to say apricot. Oh, there you
1: go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. We'll see. We'll see. That's a test. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jonah.